We are in, still in Galatians chapter 4, part 12, and really we've been just hovering over this amazing passage of Revelation where the Apostle Paul has opened our eyes to see that Abraham's two wives, they're more than just simply his physical wives. They actually are prophetic templates of the two covenants. The, the, the old covenant given at Mount Sinai, which is represented through Hagar. And we're told that this covenant actually gives birth to bondage. And actually, it's in the New Testament, it's actually identified as a ministry of death. And this is what happens. This is, this is this Hagar. This is who she is. This is her characteristics. But then we go on the other side of the aisle, and we have a completely different covenant. We have a covenant represented through Sarah, one that gives birth to life, one that gives birth to liberty and freedom. Vastly different. It couldn't be more different than the first covenant, than the one that was given at Mount Sinai. And one of the things that we were doing last week, if you remember, is we were looking at the differences. And we were looking at the differences specifically in regard to the infrastructure of the covenant. We were looking at five principles. And these principles are as follows. You have the Ten Commandments in, in Hebrew, the Aseret HaDevarim. See, with Hagar, under the Old Covenant... The commandments were actually etched in stone and they were housed in the Kodesh HaKodeshim, in the Holy of Holies, right? But under the new covenant, it's completely different. They have a new location. The, 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 the commandments of God are actually written in our hearts. It's a beautiful thing. And it's much closer to us than ever before. Superior. And then we talked about the temple, you know, Exodus 25, 8, have them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell tavech among them, in the midst of them. The Lord wants relationship with his people. See, but under Hagar, under this old covenant, what did we find? Well, this was experienced, this was realized through an actual physical, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, which ended up becoming the Beit Hamikdash in Yerushalayim, an actual physical house where the dwelling presence, what the Jews would tell you is the Shekinah, the Shekinah, or what we would say the Holy Spirit, the dwelling presence of God resided in that house. But under the new covenant with Sarah, the dwelling presence of God is within us, and now we are called the temple of God. And as I mentioned, you can go through the Tanakh, you won't find anywhere where people are running around saying, you are the temple of the Lord and the Spirit of God dwells in you. But under the new covenant, this is exactly what we find. And then we talked about a mediator. Under Hagar, under the old covenant, that mediator is Moshe. He's the mediator of that covenant. Under the new covenant, it is Yeshua. And he is superior, again, in every way to Moses. And you think about what a mediator does, mediating between two parties. It's fascinating to me. Now we have uh, Yeshua, who is the closest to the Father. And so if the people of God want a mediator to communicate with God, it would stand to reason that the best mediator that we could have is the one closest to the Father. And what do you know? We now, with Sarah, under this new covenant, this Brit Chadashah, we have the individual who is closest to the Father. And it's interesting. And then on this side of it, you have someone, Yeshua being Closest to the people. You couldn't be more close. In fact, he actually was the bread that was sent down from heaven. And he, the word became flesh. 
And we're told by the writer of Hebrews that we do not have a priest that cannot sympathize with us, but was in every point tempted as we are, and yet without sin. He sympathized. He knows the temptations that you're going through. He knows that. What an awesome mediator. And then we began, we just started to scratch the surface on the priesthood. Well, today we're actually going to finish talking about the Kohanim and what happened to that priesthood as we shifted from the old covenant into the new covenant. And and how does Yeshua play into this? I mean, if you remember, we, we started to scratch the surface and we started to see a precedent was set in regard to Yeshua and the priesthood. And we found this in Psalm 110. And the Lord has sworn and will not relent. And you are a priest, a Kohen, forever according to the order of Melchizedek. I mean, this is Yeshua, and this is the Father's declaration. He is declaring to his Son, you are a priest forever. That's eternity. It will never be inhibited. Powerful, powerful concept. Notice that Yeshua would not be a priest according to the order of Aaron. This is a different order. And when you understand the characteristics, as I mentioned before, of Melchizedek, this makes perfect sense. Characteristics which says he was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Neither beginning days or end of life. This is absolutely, Yeshua is eternal in nature. He existed before the world was ever created. And guess what? He will never die. He will never die. He's eternal in nature. Yes, he died as the the Pesach lamb. But one thing that you'll notice is that this is very contrary to the Aaronic order. And the Aaronic order, you will have priests generation after generation. What happens? They stop serving because they die. Not so with this order. The order of Melchizedek, Melchizedek, he serves forever. It's It's eternal. Today, we are going to continue on in this passage in Hebrews chapter 7. And if you remember, some of you remember, or you remind me, I kind of left you hanging, alluding to the fact that we were going to be embarking on some serious controversy. And we are. And we're going to embark on that right now. So in Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to drop down to verse 11. This is what we read. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, For under it, the people received the law. Now remember, the priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood that was instituted by God himself, it was the nervous system, it was the central, it was core to the covenant. See, because it wasn't that they just offered incense in the morning and at night and tended the the lamps. It was way more than that. They kept Israel in relationship with God. They They actually communicated God's character his thoughts, his dislikes, his will to the people because they were teachers of Torah. And that is a vital piece here. And so when he says that if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the Torah, okay, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not according to the order of Aaron? Now, I alluded to this before. The writer is brilliant. See, this is, this is a complete setup. He's ready to deliver something very profound, uh, very controversial. It's the nuclear bomb, if you will, of controversy. And he knows what he is about to drop. So what he does is brilliant. 
He is provoking his audience to thought with this statement. Think about it. He's telling his audience, think about it. If perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, then why does scripture later on talk about the order according to Melchizedek? A priesthood, another priesthood. It's a rhetorical question. In other words, he's drawing these dots. He's connecting the dots for us saying and, and telling us you wouldn't. If perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, you wouldn't talk about another priesthood. This is very, very simple. At which point, his very next statement is this. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there's also a change of the law. You feel the weight of that statement? Game changer. This is a game changer. The priesthood has been changed. Let's put this into the historical context for a second. Number one, the book of Hebrews was written before the destruction of the temple. That's very important. Scholars across the board agree on this. And they debate about how, how much before, sometimes 10 years, sometimes more. But it was written before the destruction of the temple. What does that mean? It means the ironic order. The priests were serving in the temple. That's very important. So put yourself in Paul's shoes for a second. Imagine him running around Yerushalayim, telling his Jewish brethren, hey, I got some, I got some amazing news. I thought you guys might like to, to know this. Uh, yeah, the priesthood's been changed. Yeah, oh yeah, behind me. I understand. Yo, the priests that are actually literally serving in the temple, that are singing praises to the Lord, that are offering the sacrifices literally as the writer is writing this. Oh yeah, that priesthood has been changed. Oh, and get this, this is good. The law has been changed. Are you guys feeling the weight of the statement? Best case scenario, best case scenario, the response of the audience that listened to these words was what? What are you talking about? They would be filled with intrigue. They would assail him with question after question. That is the best case scenario. Worst case scenario, you'd be deemed a heretic. Worst case scenario, you would be deemed an enemy of Israel, speaking against God's holy word. And that is very real. Think about the gravity of this statement. In fact, I, I could take it to today. Do you know that this statement is causing controversy today? Not so much among Christendom per se, which is ironic and beautiful at the same time, but more so as you get into, the, you jump the tracks to the Hebrew root side. As you jump the tracks to the Hebrew root side, they struggle. Some of them are really struggling with this passage. And they see themselves as defenders of Torah, and I, and I stand with them in that regard. And I've mentioned that before. I appreciate my brothers that want to defend the Torah. But I will never do so at the expense of truth. That can't be done. And so you need to understand, and I'm not going to go through the different ideologies that are out there. I'll give you an example. They struggle with this so much to know that the Torah cannot be changed. And their mind that some teachers have risen up and actually said the writer of Hebrews does not know what he's talking about. Now, I'm not making that up. One that is more common, though, is a little more crafty. And that is, well, we misunderstand what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's actually talking about two independent priesthoods that exist independently from one another. And Christ, Yeshua, is in heaven, and he is the priest in the heavenly realm. But as long as we're here on earth and with everybody here on earth, the ironic order stands. It doesn't go anywhere. 
And they will offer you scripture, have these conversations. They will take you to Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I came to destroy the Torah and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Therefore, you are misreading Hebrews 7.12. Yeshua himself, not a jot or tittle. Don't try to tell me that the Aaronic priesthood has been changed or that they've been slid across or slid under the rug. That couldn't have happened. And this is what people are purporting. And then they will take you to the Torah and remind you in Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. How could anyone and their right mind say the Aaronic priesthood is in fact changed. That's the very definition of adding and taking away. What do we do with this? What do we do with these objections? Well, before I answer that question, I think it's important to point out what the writer of Hebrews didn't say. And I say this on behalf of Christendom. Going back to Hebrews 7.12, the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the Torah. Now let me be very clear on something. Nowhere do we find that the Torah is done away with. Now keep in mind, Hebrews is written post-resurrection. The gospel of Yeshua is going out. You just read the book of Hebrews, you see this. It's written post-resurrection. Nowhere will you find anywhere that he says the law has been done away with. It's been made null and void. What he says is that there's been a change to the law. To which the naysayers come on and say, you can't say that. You can't say that. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it. It prohibits you from saying that. Hold on a second. I want to point something out. It says you. You shall not add to the word which the Lord commands or takes away. Not God. Nowhere will you find that. Well, then the response is the objection. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But God is the same yesterday, today, forever. He doesn't change. And you're trying to say that he changed. Let me answer that objection. And listen to me very carefully, because what I'm about to convey to you is one of the most important principles I could possibly convey to you in your study of the word. You get this principle down, it will preserve you from deception. You get this principle down, you will know truth. You will be uh, performing responsible exegesis. And you will be helping others do the same. This principle is so vitally important. And it is this. When it comes to the word of the Lord, you will notice that the Lord, he includes certain provisions. He includes special clauses, as it were, right within the contract itself. And what do I mean by contract? I'm talking about his written word. I'm talking about what we call the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. The Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketavim. What, what, what Christians identify as, as the Old Testament. Scripture. It's called Scripture in the New Testament, right? This is God's contract. This is God's written word. And so these changes, such as we see in, in, in Hebrews 7.12 here, they're not produced out of thin air. Think it through. These are not changes that come from the creativity of man's mind, but rather they're included by God himself in the original contract. And so for every single change the Lord was going to perform, as you move from the old covenant into the new covenant, guess what? 
every single change is accounted for, without exception. Mediator, that we were going to have a new mediator? You can read right within the Torah itself. It alludes that there would be a change. Right within the Torah itself, read Deuteronomy 18, that there would be another mediator. Priesthood, Psalm 110. Genesis 14, there was a precedent. God left himself a witness. He left himself a precedent so that the change could be justified. What about the new covenant? You'll notice when you're reading the Torah, it doesn't, it's not this big event that, oh, you're entering into a Brit Hadashah. It's a Brit Yashen. It's an old covenant. It's the, it's the, actually, at the time, it's just called covenant. Nothing about a new covenant. See, but when you get to the prophets, what do you read? In Jeremiah 31, he's going to perform a new covenant. What is Ezekiel? Talks about a covenant of breach shalom, a covenant of peace. See, the prophets came on the scene and they left. God left himself a witness. Understand that principle. Do not think that you're going to read the Torah apart from the prophets and you're going to come to God's conclusion. You're going to come to his intent. You will fail. I want to warn you in your quest to protect the Torah, do not turn into a Samaritan where you become so limited in your understanding that you end up rejecting the very truth you think you're defending. And what do I mean by that statement? The Samaritans rejected all further revelation. All the prophets, they did not listen to Samuel the prophet. They refused him. They refused David the king. They refused Isaiah and Jeremiah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, all of them, they're cast aside. You know why? Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to this word nor take from it. That's why they don't worship in Yerushalayim. And I've said it so many times, the Samaritans will not worship because it's not until I get into 1 Kings, a book the Samaritans reject. That's a further revelation. No, that can't be because you cannot add to the word nor take from it. And so the Samaritans to this day, they, they worship and, and sacrifice on Mount Gerizim. The Mount of Blessing, which is in the Torah. See, that's all they're looking at. They're looking at the Torah without any influence from the prophets. Don't become a Samaritan. Unfortunately, one of the plagues that I see happening in the Hebrew roots as they're coming in to, to be defenders of Torah, and they're doing this, the enemy is coming in and deceiving them, and they're, they're, they're going into a Samaritan camp without even realizing it. Not acknowledging the totality of God's word but rejecting it. Well, with that said, I want to build a case today. And I, and I really, I love my Hebrew roots brothers that, that are coming into Torah, that love Torah and want to confess Yeshua. And so, you know, today is very, very important. And it's not just important that you understand it. Again, this is important that you have the ability to go pull these guys out of the fire. And I know many of you talk, and, and with the internet, the world's a very, very small place today. You need to be able to defend the truth and stand on the truth. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to build a case, and I'm going to show you the precedent has been set. God left us all these amazing little clues within his Torah and in the prophets that change would come. And so the first clue I want to take you to is Exodus 32. And Moses, he goes up to the mountain to get the law. He's going to be coming down with the stone tablets, but the natives get restless. And they tell Aaron, they go to Aaron, make us Elohim to go before us. As for this Moses, we don't know what has happened to him. 
Aaron responds to them. He actually said, okay, break off all your earrings. Melt it down. I want all the gold. And this is what we read. Look at this. In Exodus 32, verse 4, this is amazing. And he, meaning Aaron, Aharon, received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool. Now, how many times when you just think about the story, you're thinking, you picture Israel making the, the golden calf. No. This is amazing. The one who is ordained to serve as Kohen Gadol, the high priest, he is the one that fashioned the golden calf. You are kidding me. You look at this. And he made a molden calf. And they said, this is your Elohim, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. We're not done. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. He not only made the image, but he's the one who constructed the altar to worship it. And then it goes on. And Aaron made a proclamation, said, tomorrow is a feast to Yehovah. That's an amazing thing. I mean, that's a whole nother sermon in itself of literally people thinking, well, we're still serving. We'll utilize the name Jesus. We'll utilize the name Yehovah, but we'll worship him in our own way. See, we'll, get, we'll create our own gods. And this is what Christianity is doing today. I wish I had time to get into that. I don't. So Moses, he, he comes down from the mountain to say he's angry is an understatement. He's beyond livid. We get to verse 21. This is what we read. And Moshe said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? Moses went after Aaron and said, what have you done? What did they do to you that was so bad that you did this to them? The one who was ordained to be Kohen Gadol, the very one that was to be the intercessor to draw them in to the Lord, to teach them the commandments of the Lord. And he's the one that took up the image. And he's the one who called it a feast to Yehovah. Going to verse 25. And when Moshe saw the people, look at this, were unrestrained. Oh, what does it say? For Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. That is an amazing statement. Aaron, the Kohen Gadol, the very one that is supposed to facilitate this intimacy with God and the people... He did not restrain them. The very thing he was called to do. You look at this story, look at all the little details that are recorded with it, and it's telling you one thing. Perfection was not going to be through the Aaronic priesthood. That's what it's telling you. In fact, I, I, can, I can take it a step further. We're told as you get later into the Torah, into Deuteronomy chapter 9, that Moses records this, and he actually says, Moses said, because of this event, the Lord was coming to kill Aaron. If it were not for Moses interceding on behalf of his life, he would have been dead. He would have been killed on the spot. The one who was ordained for every man following him, his seed to serve as Kohanim would never have existed. The Lord wanted to kill him, but Moses stepped in. And not just that, but we have another clue in regard to the fact that perfection would not be through the Aaronic priesthood. And that is this. Aaron never entered into the promised land. Think about this. The fact that this is recorded is substantial. He never entered into the promise. Here's, here's the irony of it. If you go to Numbers 20, you actually realize that the Lord condemns Moses and Aaron together at the waters of contention. 
and neither of them went into the promised land. Absolutely profound. When you think of Moses, he is the very embodiment of what? The Torah. Well, that's interesting because our efforts in and of ourselves in the law of Moses, in the Torah, will never bring us into the promised land. So who brought us into the promised land? Who brought Israel into the promised land? Moses' assistant, whose name is Yeshua. Yeshua. He was the only one that couldn't do it. So Moses and Aaron, the very two that presented themselves uh, before Pharaoh, the very two that led Israel out of the camp, neither of them make it into the promised land. This is not an accident. The fact that all of this was recorded, it is prophetic. And it's telling us something. It's telling us, yes, that with Moses, yes, our works in the Torah in and of themselves, we, we cannot be brought into eternal life. It's telling us that the Aaronic priesthood, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't perfect. One more clue that I want to share with you, and this one's not found in the Torah. This is actually in the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament, and it has to do with John the Baptist. His life, his ministry, who he was, all of these things are vitally important. And the first thing I want to point out is his parents. Going to Luke chapter 1, verse 5. There was in those days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias. This is John the Baptist's father. Of the division of Avia, his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Oh, John the Baptist, and this gets... People don't think about this, and this is critical. John the Baptist was the purest of the pure blood and the line of Aaron. Even his mother was a direct descendant of Aaron. His father was a direct descendant. He was a priest. What does that make John the Baptist? It makes him a Cohen. He is a priest. And I will tell you this, John the Baptist is the very embodiment of the Aaronic priesthood. As you look in Matthew 11, Yeshua himself says, as far as men uh, that have been born among women, no greater has ever risen than that of John the Baptist. Now think of the men that preceded him, including his own lineage of fathers. Aaron, John the Baptist is greater. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than King David. Think about those words that Yeshua speaks. And John is a priest. And guess what? He fulfilled the ministry of a Cohen. He did a priestly ministry. He was doing what we saw Aaron failed to do in Exodus 32. He was bringing people back to the Lord. He was preaching repentance. He was teaching them who the Lord is. And he was immersing them, washing them clean, going through a mikvah. I mean, he is the very embodiment of the Aaronic priesthood. And isn't it interesting not a coincidence, intentional. John the Baptist on multiple levels came before Yeshua. He was born before Yeshua. We know this for a fact, right? His ministry preceded that of Yeshua's. Do, do, do you think that's a coincidence? Because what priesthood came first? The Aaronic order came first and later Yeshua's order. The order according to Melchizedek would be revealed. You, you cannot make this stuff up, right? Let me take you to John chapter 3. This gets more interesting. 
And they, John's disciples, in other words, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. In other words, Yeshua was now starting his ministry, and he's baptizing. His disciples are confused. They're up in arms. Why are they doing this? Why are they all going, John, this is your ministry. This is what you've been called to do. The people are supposed to continue to come to you. They're freaking out about what's going on. Verse 27, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Mashiach, but I have been sent before him. Verse 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, in other words, the best man, the bridegroom is Yeshua. John the Baptist is the best man who stands and hears him, which John the Baptist rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. And listen to this next statement. He must increase, but I must decrease. That is an amazing statement. Because I want you to know, when John's disciples come to him and tell him that Yeshua has now began his ministry and that he is now baptizing, what didn't John do? He didn't pack his suitcase and go home. He continued. He continued in his ministry. He continued to baptize. He continued to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that is a vital piece of information that we need to recognize. It is vital. He didn't pack up. What does it tell us? We're in a time of transition. We're in a time of transition. He's decreasing while Yeshua is increasing. I'm going to tell you, this is the very way that you have to understand the transition of the Aaronic priesthood as we moved into the priesthood of Yeshua. The Aaronic priesthood didn't just stop. The Kohanim didn't stop performing the services. They still went through the ceremony of Yom Kippur. However, I can tell you this, that priesthood began to absolutely decrease while Yeshua was increasing. Which is why the writer of Hebrews could actually make the statement that we're looking at in Hebrews 7.12, that the priesthood was changed, yet the temple services were happening. As he's making that statement, it sounds crazy. It's not. See, the writer understood we're in the period of transition. In fact, you'll note that the rabbis, even unbelieving rabbis, knew something was up. Something was going on. We learn this in Yoma 39b. This is from the Talmud. Our rabbis taught during the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple. Now put this into context. 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. Go back 40 years. What do you have? You have 30 AD. What happened in 30 AD? Yeshua fulfilled his ministry. Exactly. This 40 years time, time frame. Yeshua fulfilled it in 30 AD. Something happened amongst the Aaronic priesthood and amongst the temple. And this is what we read. Our rabbis taught for the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the lot for the Lord, La Adonai, did not come up in the right hand, which as you know, if you've been through the Yom Kippur uh, sermons and stuff, you know that the priest on Yom Kippur would stick his hands in the lottery box. There was only two lots in there. And every time... We would find that the priest would pull out La Adonai, the lot for the Lord would come up in the right, and La Azazel would come up in the left. And it was considered the fact that God has received this work of Yom Kippur. 
this ceremony that we're performing. Then it goes on, nor did the crimson color strap become white, which they tied a strap, a red scarlet thread on the head of the goat that was to be sent out called Azazel, the scapegoat, okay? And then also under the door. And one of the miracles of the temple on Yom Kippur is that this scarlet thread would turn white. And amazing because we know scripture says, though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. A miracle that God had received what they had done on Yom Kippur as these Kohanim had interceded, uh, were interceding on behalf of Israel. Nor did the western most light shine, which was very significant because it was the key one to light others. And the doors of the heckel, the temple, would open by themselves. See, something happened when Yeshua fulfilled his ministry. Something significant happened. His ministry started to increase. The Aaronic priesthood started to decrease. Now, I've highlighted here, and this is absolutely critical that you recognize this. The last 40 years, how amazing is that? That this is even preserved in the Talmud. They noticed the last 40 years, something happened. Something, something was not normal. Things did not go as they always have. 40 is very significant in the Bible, isn't it? Right? And most people attribute 40 just commonly, traditionally, they attribute it to a time of testing, a time of tribulation, which I agree with. That's great. But there is one specific thing that you need to understand about the number 40. It is the number of transition. Let me give you a, a couple examples. Noah in the flood. How many days did it rain? 40 days. Call that a serious transition. When the entire world is alive, and through 40 days afterward, they're all gone. One of the most significant transitions the world has ever seen, marked out in 40. You think about uh, Yeshua in the wilderness. He was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Amazing because he was, he literally went and got through, he went through a mikvah. He was immersed by John the Baptist. Immediately upon immersing and receiving the Holy Spirit, he's driven out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And what happened when he came out of the wilderness? His ministry began. It was a time of transition. Significant time of transition. What about the children of Israel being driven out into the, taken out of Egypt, but not brought into the promised land? What was the time of transition? 40 years. It is a time of transition. Over and over again, Moses went up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. That's a significant time of transition because he came down with the law. Came down with the commandments of God. The fact that the temple services were altered for the last 40 years tells you the Aaronic priesthood was decreasing. That was the time of transition. All while the gospel was going at this time. Just check it out from 30 AD, from the, the, the fulfillment of his mission to the destruction of the temple. The gospel was going out with fire and with power. Yeshua was increasing. Even the apostles refused to stop speaking in his name, even though they were threatened to be beaten. Even threatened with death. They didn't stop. It was incredible. Yeshua increased and the Aaronic priesthood decreased. And so when we read in Hebrews 7, 12, for the priesthood being changed, okay, and you look at that in the Greek, it literally means transferred. This is what it means. So the priesthood being transferred, it's been changed. Of necessity, there is also a change of the law. Well, you'd have to have a change to the Torah if, in fact, the priesthood is being changed, if, there, if the Lord is incorporating a new one. I mean, that's the given. 
Verse 13, for he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. In other words, Yeshua, he came from the tribe of Judah. He didn't come from the tribe of Levi. He wasn't a son of Aaron, which as you know, only sons of Aaron can serve as the, under the Aaronic order. That's the bottom line. But he, he didn't come from that. It's interesting, just as a side note. There was a king of Judah who attempted to perform priestly duties to go in and burn incense, and the Lord struck him with leprosy. Uzziah is, is, is the king of Judah who, t- who attempted to do that. And so when, when, when the writer's talking about this, he knows exactly what he's talking about. You'll notice the Torah speaks nothing of it. And even when the kings attempted to do this, like Uzziah, he got himself in trouble. And, and the penalty really is death. But the Lord struck him with something even far worse. He lived as a leopard till he died. Um, now he continues in verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Yehuda, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood, verse 15. And yet it is far more evident in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another Cohen who has come, oh, not according to the law of fleshly commandment. Do you know what that means? Because the only way you could serve as a priest is if you, according to the flesh, were a son of Aaron. And the Torah says only sons of Aaron can serve. And so this is what he's referring to, according to the law of fleshly commandment. But he came according to the power of endless life, verse 17. For he testifies, and again, the writer taking you back to Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the altar of Melchizedek. So the the writer of Hebrews, to support this changing of the guard, this changing of the law to legitimize it, he goes to where he should. He goes to scripture. And this is one thing that you'll notice in Galatians that Paul has done, and I've stressed it. Paul keeps doing over and over and over again. He's supporting his claims through the scriptures. And please notice, you know, who is doing the testifying? I mean, just think about this. He testified, it is the Lord. It's the Father who's making the testimony. Trust me, the word is good. The word is sure. And so the long and the short of it is, there was a precedent for this change. There's many precedents that are set within the scriptures themselves if we're willing to accept them, or we'll be Samaritans and just reject that Samaritan ideology, that Samaritan deception. Now, the writer of Hebrews goes on to explain why this change had to come. Verse 18, for on the one hand, there is an annulling. Uh, when you look at this anathestasis, it, it's this set aside. It literally means with this annulling, this being annulled, being set aside of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Okay, so the writer again is recognizing that the Aaronic priesthood, there was weakness involved. And he's going to go on later on. I'm not going to dig into that right now. He'll dig into that as we continue on a much deeper level. For the law made nothing perfect. Okay, it goes on. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Very significant because that's what the priesthood's function really was, is to allow us to draw near to God. And that can be done no better than the order of Melchizedek. Verse 20. Inasmuch as Yeshua was not made a priest without an oath, again, Psalm 110, for they have become priests without an oath, meaning sons of Aaron. 
But he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Yeshua has become a surety of a better covenant. He is the guarantee of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. So when the writer's talking about the weakness of the Aaronic priesthood, this is one of the factors that he's considering. It's like they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, Yeshua, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. So understand something. This order of Melchizedek, it's never going to be changed. It is unchangeable. Yeshua sits as high priest and king. Verse 25, therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Verse 27, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the people's. In other words, Yom Kippur, do you know the Kohen Gadol could not make intercession for the people until he made intercession for himself first? He had to take the blood of the bull into the holy place only then was he qualified and fit to fulfill the rest. Yeshua doesn't need to do that because he was perfect. It is a better priesthood, superior in every way. For this he did once and for all when he offered himself up for the law appoints, the Torah appoints as high priests, men who have weakness. But the word of the oath, Psalm 110, that's the oath, which came after the law, appoints the son who has been perfected forever. And you think about the reality of this. 400 years after the Torah was given, this, this inspired, this Holy Spirit inspired statement came out of David's mouth. It was over 400 years. Now you have a decision. You can either accept that as gospel truth or you can reject it like the Samaritans. And so for me, I mean, this is a no-brainer. We have a new high priest. You, you, the priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, has been changed. We actually, in effect, right now, we have the ability to come before the Most High God through one, Yeshua. And it is through him, he has made atonement for my sins. One of the central core tenets that were given to the priests is that they were to go and make atonement for Israel. Man does not make atonement for me anymore. The Son of God makes atonement. And that's where I stand. And so when you look at this, we have a better covenant. Accept the beautiful things, the better things that God has given you. Don't let the enemy steal them from you. Amen?